Welcome to the Shaken and Stirred podcast. This is a festive episode as we look forward to Christmas and the outlook for 2020. I'm Simon Hildry and with me again is Phil Milburn. Hello, Phil. Hi, Simon. Now, we're going to go through the 12 days of Christmas. Well, actually, we're going to go through seven of them as Phil produces his highlights for the outlook for the bond markets in 2020. Don't worry, we aren't going to sing them. Thanks, Simon. So rather than drummers drumming, we have fixed the plumbing. This refers to the US money market where there was a real issue in repo back on September the 15th. And a lot of the talk then was that this was a one-off event, whereas there continues to be a very tight market with some banks and financial institutions struggling to get the overnight liquidity they desire. To us, this is not a massive issue yet. It's not a huge systemic issue, but it's certainly something the Fed should address and didn't fully address in their latest statement. What should they do? Well, it's very simple. They just need to put in place a permanent open market operation to provide liquidity as the lender of last resort. To me, that's the easy bit. The more important bit is that anybody actively using this facility should always have to explain why. Have they just been caught short of liquidity or do they have a more systemic issue where the market will no longer lend to them? At the moment, it appears that it's very much the former of there's just a shortage of liquidity rather than any fears. And you can see this through factors such as the LIBOR OIS spread. But longer term, it's certainly something in 2020 you need to keep an eye on. And in number 11, Piper's griping. Uh, One of my old favourites, this. Um, Post the UK election, everybody seems to think that the UK constitutional crisis has been put on the back burner. There are two big issues, though, for 2020. The first is the much talked about transition period. And will it be extended in July or will the UK have the danger of crashing out at the 2020 end? And the second is the fact that the SNP are again in Scotland talking up the probability or their desire for a second independence referendum. And certainly there is a strong argument that the vote in Scotland was very much remain and Scotland is being taken out against its will. On the other side, the UK is a member rather than Scotland. So you can see both sides, but the tensions between Holyrood and Westminster are inevitably going to increase, um, given the strained relationship already between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson. So plenty of fireworks between Scotland and England to look forward to in 2020. We're going to jump straight to number five now, five gold Olympic rings. Yep. In 2020, Tokyo will be hosting the Summer Olympics. And whenever any country hosts the Olympics, there's always a risk of a slowdown afterwards. A lot of infrastructure build goes into any Olympic hosting and you get the temporary tourist boost um, partly offset by the fact that a lot of people take time off work to watch the sporting events. But in this case, Japan have put together a package of about 13 trillion yen about $120 billion equivalent over the next 15 months. This is both to counter any slowdown after the Olympics and because they've recently increased the sales tax. And last time Japan did that, they slid into recession. This is not just about Japan. And for me, one of the most important themes for 2020 
is the replacement of monetary stimulus with fiscal stimulus. But this is just a good example of Japan being one of the countries leading the way, trying to boost their economy of the fiscal side, saying, as David Roberts and I agree, that monetary policy has gone just about as far as it can. And counting down to number one now, next, number four, Calling Birds. I used artistic licence here with the title of Calling Birds. And this is really the fact that Trump will still continue to Twitter on, tweet on on Twitter. um, And he continues to be erratic at best in terms of policymaking. This doesn't mean he doesn't have some success in policymaking and does seem to be extracting the US a better trade deal from his dealings with China, albeit at a cost of the industrial production slowdown and manufacturing recession we have seen around the world. It has now seemed to have reached a bottom with inventories having been drawn down, and we should begin to see a recovery next year. But most importantly for Trump, what he wants is another four-year term in office. And with the election in November, um, he might be erratic, but he does know that he needs to have a strong economy in order to get re-elected. So I consider that he will be dialing down the rhetoric um, through next year so the economy can have a boost before potentially dialing it back up again if, um, and it looks like the probability says he will, be re-elected. Now for number three, some French Zen. The transition of the ECB presidency um, from Draghi to Christine Lagarde I think is a bigger event than some people give it credit for. Christine Lagarde, having been um, originally a French minister and more recently head of the IMF, comes with a more pragmatic and a less theoretical stroke academic leadership of the ECB. In her most recent press statement and um, interviews, she's described herself as neither a hawk nor a dove, more of an owl, someone who wants to look at the evidence and decide accordingly. Interestingly, the ECB has a policy review starting early in 2020. It's likely to take the first half of the year. The conclusions of that may well be that the ECB shifts to a symmetrical inflation target rather than at or close to 2%. Um, Or they might even follow the Fed's type review and consider looking at a nominal growth or total nominal GDP target. Either of these would imply loose policy for the foreseeable future, Um, but it would be inflationary over the longer term as it means both the ECB and if the Fed shifts that way, the Fed as well, are likely to support growth for longer than you normally would in prior cycles. The conclusion of this is fairly obvious, though. The US remains further through the monetary cycle. Rates are expensive. You want to stay underweight interest rate risk, short duration risk. But we still much prefer taking exposure, the minimal exposure we will take in US treasuries to European debt, such as German bonds. Down to the last two now. And at number two, turncoat doves. If I alluded to the Fed a minute or two ago, um, and the Fed and their most recent statement have basically said that they're on hold for 2020 dependent on any significant change in the data. If you're to examine the Fed's dot plot, um, the estimates of where each member thinks the rates will be in 2020, 13 of the 17 are saying they're likely to be on hold, 
with four of the 17 expecting a rise of just 25 basis points. Presently, there's a far larger hurdle to actually a rate rise than a cut. But if the trade war does dissipate, as per my expectations, the doves could easily turn face um, and actually look at well such things as core inflation running at 2.2% and the economy running with very full employment and realise that inflation is slowly but steadily increasing um, and ultimately 2019 was slower growth due to the trade wars, but the underlying picture is still pretty healthy. And a number one and a birthday first strategy. And that was the most cheesy and rhyming I could possibly persuade Simon to say in this call. Um, But on the 16th of December 2019, it marks the 16-year anniversary of the launch of David and I running strategic bond funds. We were one of, if not the first in the UK to launch one, taking the idea from the US total return bond funds. And 16 years later, the same premise still remains. Bonds are not an amorphous mass. There are lots of different sub-markets within them with varying correlations both to the economic cycle, to risk markets and to each other. So there'll always be somewhere in the bond market performing more strongly than another. The classic two ones being sovereign bonds doing well when high-yield bonds do badly and vice versa. And as well as these beta risks, there's always a way to make money out of the mispriced securities in what remains a highly inefficient market at the individual security level. So what we're looking to do in 2020 is just mainly focus on that alpha with beta risk, the rates risk I talked about earlier, still being expensive, and maximise the risk-adjusted returns. We're very excited about 2020, and at the same time, we wish all our listeners all the best for 2022. Thank you, Phil. I'm just going to pick up on the festive theme just before I let you go. What, if you if you could have a wish for one thing to happen next year and a wish for one thing not to happen next year, whether it's markets, economics or politics, what would they be? Um, from a purely market rather than personal perspective, I would love there to be a fiscal stimulus and certainly with the recent change at the top of the Um, German more left-leading part of their GroKo coalition, it looks like the 2% fiscal surplus may well start to trend down towards a balanced budget, um, that great uh, black line as they refer to it. Um, And certainly I think a fiscal stimulus will be far more effective um, pound for pound, euro for euro at stimulating growth. Um, So more fiscal stimulus, but preferably invested in capital infrastructure for the long term be that green investment or just infrastructure that helps productivity. What don't I want to see happening is any further monetary stimulus. I think, and we've talked about this on previous Shaken and Sturds, we're long since past the reversal rate where actually interest rate cuts and more monetary stimulus becomes counterproductive. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you very much for all the podcasts this year. Thank you to everybody who's listened to us. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Be back with you in January.